Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Smith & Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. This is the full version, folks, of Smith & Jones. Hopefully you checked out our little express version, our, our abbreviated version earlier in the week. You can always find the podcast wherever you get your podcast: Google, Apple, Spotify, or otherwise. Download, subscribe, rate, and review. And we've got lots to dive into as we are clearly in the thick of it in the second round in the NBA postseason. And outside of perhaps, perhaps a bit of a dog on Wednesday night, the NBA postseason has been filled with a ton of great games, a lot of drama. Ratings are off the charts, at least stateside. I think here in Canada, things have been pretty solid as well in terms of the ratings on the various networks and whatnot. So it speaks to the quality of ball that is being played. And again, I mentioned a bit of a dog on Wednesday night, but to break that game, eh, maybe that game a little bit down, but more so the series and what to anticipate and expect going forward. We're pleased to be joined. Uh, he's joined us many times in the past as well. Always gracious with his time from the Boston Globe, Gary Washburn. Gary, when referencing Wednesday night, I said it was a bit of a dog. Uh, that's probably an understatement. I mean, it was it was a dominant affair. Um, do you think that was a blip as far as the rest of the series goes? Because it's certainly been kind of a weird one, the first two games where Embiid's out and yet the Sixers win and then Embiid's back and suddenly it's a blowout on the other side. It's just kind of been a weird start these first couple of games. Yeah, totally weird. And, um, you know, I think Philadelphia played a style that the Celtics hadn't really much, pretty much seen uh, from the Sixers in years and, and that kind of freewheeling three-pointer you know, Houston Harden style where, you know, if he wasn't shooting the three, he was passing it to Paris or Maxi or uh, Jane, uh, George's Niang or uh, De'Anthony Melton. And it, those guys were spraying threes too. I mean, Melton had five threes in the first half. It was, it, it was just one of those situations where, you know, I think the South got caught off guard. And then I think their defense slipped because they got into kind of outscoring Philadelphia and even when they had a chance to close the game out, they made a bunch of, you know, botchy plays, bad plays in the last couple of minutes and lost the game and, and left it to Harden, you know, one-on-one with Al Horford and knocking down that, that go-ahead three. So, I mean, I think that they were upset about that. They knew they, they knew, knew they should be up 2-0 in this series going back to Philly. Now Philly has life. And I think that their response was – Let's tighten up the defense. The offense will take care of itself. And Philadelphia plays slower, obviously, as you guys know, with Embiid on the floor. They, they've got to get the ball to him. They've got to make it an emphasis. They've got to wait for him to get down the floor. And I think that kind of played into the Celtics' hands. Gary, all kinds of places I could go with you here. Um, Embiid wins the MVP. Uh, I'd, be, I'd be interested to know. It'll come out eventually, but how the votes went because, I mean, you look at, uh, you look at, uh, you know, Jokic, everybody thought he, it was going to be him. Embiid wins it, comes back, his team basically flops. And I know as we record this, you're getting ready, uh, you know, you're getting ready for game three. And the scene in Philadelphia on Friday night when he gets his MVP trophy that might be something that that's like old school, Gary. We've seen that in the past where a guy gets or a coach or somebody gets presented a trophy before a playoff game at home. It can really pump things up. What, what are you expecting? Because as Eric said, the first two games were, were, were such a contrast in styles. Yeah, I expect that the, obviously the Philly crowd is going to be completely jacked. Indeed, finally getting his MVP, long awaited 
having an MVP season. He'll play to the crowd. And I think the Celtics are going to have to watch out for that first five minutes where they could fall behind, you know, 15 to two, and then suddenly playing from behind. They, you know, they, they're a good road team. They had one of the better road records in the NBA this year. They're used to playing on the road. They won earlier this year at Philadelphia. So I think they'll be used to the environment. You know, they had to play last year at Miami, obviously not a, a raucous crowd, but then at Milwaukee during the playoffs last year. So I think they're used to playing in these environments. And I think this will be extra jacked because it's the Celtics, because it's the playoffs. And, you know, it's the first time since 18 that these two teams have met in the playoffs outside the bubble. They met in 2020, obviously, in the bubble. So, uh, you know, and the, and the Philadelphia, New York, sorry, Boston rivalry, you know, all of that comes into play. So I think, and I'm sure they'll bring out, you know, AI, they'll bring out Dr. J, they'll bring out every former Sixer uh, they can get their hands on, you know, to try to bring the nostalgia and, and try to pump up the crowd and the environment, and the Celtics are going to have to withstand that, play a solid first six, seven minutes, and then hopefully things for them calm down. Hey, Gary, he finished fourth in MVP voting, Jason Tatum. Uh, I want to get back to that in a second. But for him specifically in that game, too, sort of lost in the blowout victory is one for seven in 19 minutes, seven points, first time in, in what, 160, I believe, plus games where he didn't score in double figures. Um is that anything to read into, or is it just, again, one of those, like, hey, every once in a while, even the greats have an off night? Yeah, he got into foul trouble, and he, he picked up his third foul, like six minutes maybe left, in, five minutes left in the first half, sat out and played, um, started the third quarter and immediately picked up, you know, the fourth on a screen on Harden, and then they pulled him, which uh, they let him in, in the game. He remained in the game for a while. And then he went out when he, you know, his normal substitution. And suddenly the Celtics made this big run, hit a bunch of threes, and his services were, were no longer required. So I think it was one of those situations where he was not on at all. Uh, he had his first, uh, he hit his only field goal in the first quarter. Then Vince it, it didn't need him. So I just think it gave him kind of a rest. He didn't have to play heavy minutes. He didn't have to carry the load. And I'm sure he'll be motivated to play a good game three after, obviously, an extremely subpar game two. And I just think that is kind of a, an example of the depth the Celtics had where, where they didn't need 35-point Tatum to win by 34 points. So uh, I think for the Celtics, they're probably relieved that he got took some time off of his feet. He didn't have to carry the load. And I think he'll definitely national television stage again, ESPN on – uh, and in all the Canadian networks uh, on Friday night, he will be motivated to make a statement. Hey, Gary, I know Eric wants to touch on the MVP thing. Um, you know, I, I and people say it's a regular season award, although if I had a vote, not sure I could have given it to Jokic because of a guy that plays one end of the floor. But then again, we've seen that before. Um, the other award, Coach of the Year, for a while, Joe Mazzula was in the running for that. And it's very, it's, a, it's very different, the regular season than the playoffs. And you've been around championship teams and championship coaches. It's different now. You've got Mazzula trying to match with, with, with Doc Rivers, who already has a title. And what have you seen from Joe Mazzula, like in terms of comporting himself and 
his strategy, his tactics, his game plan in the postseason. I mean, it, it's kind of a small sample size, but I, they always say coaches not don't necessarily win you a game because the players have to execute the game plan, but they can lose the game or a series if you have a bad game plan. Yeah, I, I see a coach learning on the fly. I see a coach at times who's stubborn, who feels like this should work, and sometimes it doesn't. And I see a coach who, who in, in some ways, has to be forced to, to, to adjust. And sometimes his words don't get through to, to his players so much. I don't think he told Malcolm Brogdon, hey, throw the ball to Maxi, pass up a bunch of good shots, then uh, throw it away for the go-ahead bucket in game one. Like, some things he can't help. But I do think he was stern in his message for game two is we need to play defense. Like, our standard – uh, is what he's telling them is, is defense. That's our bread and butter. We can score with the best of them, but we've got to defend. We've got to make it hard on James Harden. I think they felt like Harden had it way too easy in game one, allowed to get to his spots. And in game two, he got to the free throw line uh, frequently. You know, he, he was free throw James, but his, you know, didn't hit a three-pointer. I think he was two for ten from the field overall. So he just he was off, but it was also the defense. So I think – Joe is learning on the fly, and he's got to understand he's going to face, you know, I thought Quinn Snyder got the best of him in the Atlanta series. That's why that game was extended to six. That series was extended to six games. And Doc kind of outfoxed him with his own defense in game one. You know, so I think there's a level of having to learn on the fly because these coaches, the Spolsters, the Doc Rivers, even the Nick Nurses, uh, you know, they've been in big playoff games. They know what they're doing. They know – but they're, they're going to pull out all the all the stops, and and Missoula has to learn to adjust to that. This is his first playoffs. I don't think anybody expects he's going to be a, a wizard out there, but I think it's it's kind of learning on the fly and making adjustments when they need to be made. Hey Gary, I respect the fact that that you know nobody wants to look past an opponent by any means. I, I get all that, but. Has anybody said anything on or off the record, or have you gotten any sense from even the Philly side of things? But the Celtics and the Sixers, are they looking at this thinking with Giannis and the Bucks out now, even though Miami is you know, trying to prove to be dangerous, Knicks looking to make some noise, who knows how that series is going to play out? Clearly the path, the potential path to a berth in the finals should be, in theory, quote-unquote, easier without having to deal with with the number one seed and the Bucks being out. Is that something that's on the minds of the Celtics and Sixers at this point, or is it purely just focusing on, hey, we got to deal with this round two first? Yeah, I do think that there's kind of a light at the end of the tunnel type of mentality where, okay, let's get through this series. And I don't think that they either of the two teams think, okay, this the next one is going to be easier. But obviously, you don't have Giannis there, and you'll, you'll have home court advantage. Um, you'll be the prohibitive favorite. And, you know, this is the Knicks are, are a team that, that, that at times plays great basketball. And we saw they lost game one uh, against Miami. They didn't look so good. And then they kind of barely held on and came back to beat the Heat without Butler. And then the Heat, they're so banged up that you got to think maybe, um, you know, their luck's going to run out and, and maybe you'll catch them tired and catch them kind of on fatigue and maybe have, they have gone as far as they're going to go. So I think that there's a level of like, let's just get past this. Let's, you know, this could be seven games, but then 
it doesn't necessarily get easier, but you have more of an advantage. Definitely home court, definitely not facing Giannis, definitely facing a team that didn't expect to be there, that does probably have more flaws than the team you thought you would face. All right, Gary, well, uh, give me your, I mean, before we talk to you again, I'm sure as the NBA playoffs extend, uh, who's winning this series? Well, it's a tough one. Uh, I, I still, I, st- I started with the Celtics in six. I think that they have something again on Philadelphia with Embiid in the game. Now, that's not to say um, Philadelphia is not a good club or they won't win their share of games. I'll say Celtics in seven. Um, I think it'll be very interesting to see how these two games in Philadelphia go. I do think that the, the Sixers have confidence after winning game one. But I think losing by 34, looking so kind of lethargic, even in the conference semifinals, like it, it, especially in the second half, I, I, was a little, I was a little concerned with that. I'm a Philadelphia fan. It's not like they lost by 15. It's not like Tatum and Brown both went to 35. Like they, they lost by 34, and Tatum had seven points. So I think there will be a you know different series or it will be a more interesting series with now going back to Philly, but I think the Celtics uh, eke this out in seven. Gary, we appreciate the time as always. Safe travels, and we'll look forward to speaking again soon. Hey, guys, thanks a lot. That was Gary Washburn from the Boston Globe. And, Jonesy, we're going to quickly shift attention over from Gary Washburn to a guy who's joined us many times over the past few seasons. Well, heck, a few decades perhaps even. We've been, we've been chatting with Frankie Ice for a long time from – NBA radio on Sirius XM satellite radio from ESPN and from the Nets broadcasts on the Yes Network as well. He's all over the place. Frank Isola. Frank, before I get into anything else, we just finished chatting with Gary Washburn, and, and one of the things I was talking to Gary about, the MVP with Jason Tatum finishing fourth in the voting, and I know you brought this up on uh, Thursday morning on your show on NBA radio with Scal, and you guys were talking with uh, with Abby Chin as well. And, and one of the things th- that you discussed I guess or the angle you were taking is how much the MVP means to Jason Tatum as the three dudes ahead of him all international players the international players have been dominating the MVP award for a number of seasons now and I'm going to use your own words and and throw kind of back to you Frank do you think that Tatum is the guy that has the best chance to maybe swing this thing back to an American or even dare I say kind of referencing Shea Gilgis Alexander here at least a North American player? Like, what's your sense of that, Frank? That's true. Maybe a North American player would win it. Uh, I think Tatum would certainly be a candidate. I think Devin Booker, if he could stay healthy. And I would also throw Kevin Durant into the mix once again if he could stay healthy. But, you know, Brian Scalabrini talks about this all the time. You have to want to win the award. And clearly, Embiid wanted to win it this year. He, again, I think it was 66 games, 65, 66 games that he played in. Uh, Giannis had only played in 63. I found it hard to vote for a guy that missed 19. So Tatum plays a lot. He did tail off a little bit. But you look, he's always playing for a really good team. He's incredibly talented. He scores a lot. To me, he would seem like the most likely candidate to win it if it's going to be a non-international player or slash uh, Canadian player. He he. If I was a betting man, and I'm not, I would probably put my money on Jason Tatum. Yeah, Frank, and and look, here's the other thing, too. And um, I I listen to you and Scal all the time, too. And there are a lot of people at one point in the year, as you guys said, killing Jokic. And I I don't know if I 
I don't know if I put myself in that category because I'm always I'm always killing bad defense. I mean, you and I and Eric, we go back to an era when it wasn't, you know, whoever had the ball last wins the game. I mean, you know, that shot that Jordan Poole took, like, like, like somewhere Pat Riley is rolling over from his Knicks days. Like, they're, like that doesn't happen. <laughs> and, and the defense, the NBA's devalued defense. And I, I, Jokic might be the, one of the best skilled players I have ever seen in the game offensively but the other end of the court like I, I the old school values in me can't give that guy a full endorsement for MVP and and and, and I I have my issues with Embiid too biggest guy in the gym always on the floor like the flopping is ridiculous so yep. um you know Tatum is a guy that you know take away the fact that he plays on a good team as you said Take it away, and you know he he might have a real shot. But what I want to know, Frank, is how you retained your vote, your vote, brother. You work you work locally. No, I they don't. Took it. No, I hey, don't. you work for the work, Nets. I don't work. You work for the I don't Nets. Work for the Nets. No, I don't. You're on there pre and post. I see you all the time with your tie and, and looking sharp. I'm, I'm part time on the, on the Yes Network. Nothing to do with the Nets. Ah, they still give okay. me. They still give me. I didn't vote for any Nets in the top five. I don't think for uh, MVP. I think my votes went. It was Embiid, Giannis, Jokic, Tatum, and I might have gone either Donovan Mitchell or Sabonis. I I, I forget now who I picked uh, for fifth. But with Jokic, you know, you bring up a good point about defense. But like this year, for example, they did finish with the best record in the Western Conference. He did yes. play more games than Embiid and uh, Giannis. And he makes everyone around him better. I don't think – I think he got tired of all the rhetoric around the, around the award. His stats went down a lot the past maybe two weeks of the season. I do find it interesting that now, the, now that the playoffs have started, look at his shot attempts. I think he had 29 in the, yeah. in the last game, or 26 or 29. But he's shooting a lot more. His numbers have been big. The team, because they float under the radar, they're 6-1. and one. He's a plus 38 thus far in the playoffs. So he, he's actually elevated his game. And, all right, they played Minnesota the first round. Minnesota does have Towns and Gobert. He dominated that series. And now he's going up you know, going up against Booker and Durant, and he's being guarded, obviously, by DeAndre Ayton, who's a former number one overall pick. So I think he's done really well for himself. I think he knows the way that it works. It's still about winning a championship, and I think that's why it's good for Embiid. Because Embiid yeah. does a lot of this, oh, nobody likes me. Oh, I guess they don't think I should be the MVP. All right, now you got the MVP. Now you're going to be judged like all these players get judged. And I'm not even saying you have to win a championship because that's hard. But, you know, can you get to a finals? That'll be the next big step. First, he's got to get out of the second round, which he's never done. But the next big step for Embiid, well, can you get to an Eastern Conference finals and an NBA finals? Yeah, Frank, I agree. Because, look, we look at um... – the MVP as a regular season award, but the shadow is cast into the playoffs. Like the next year, when you come back and you're playing, quote, like an MVP, unquote, people will say, yeah, but he was out in the first round last year. And everybody says, oh, it's a regular season award. Yeah, it is. But if you're that good in the regular season, why aren't you making your team better in the playoffs as well when it really counts? And and I think to me, as much as people don't want to say it, that had some impact on 
on, you know, what was, to me, what was going on with Jokic. And you and Scal always talk about adjustments. And I love the line you guys say when, okay, well, give me an adjustment. Because you're right. These fans just use, oh, he doesn't make adjustments. Well, what's your adjustment? And they can't tell you. Are you surprised that Monty Williams has not gone more mid-range pick and roll, putting Jokic in the pick and roll the way they used to treat Shaq or any immobile big guy to take the mid-range shot, even though the analytics want you to take threes? Yeah, I, I think it's a fair point. And I also think, you know, last night Boston was smart with Embiid. He hadn't played in 13 days. And their thing was like, let's get him out on the perimeter trying to close out on, on jump shooters. And they could, they could in theory, uh, Phoenix could do the same thing with Jokic on the defensive end. you got to make him work. Because once the game slows down and then he has the ball at the other end of the court, he's going to pick you apart. And it's very interesting with Phoenix. I give Denver a lot of credit. If you had told me out of all the series which one would be 2-0 after two games, I would not have said Denver and Phoenix. I just figured, you know, Kevin Durant and Devin Booker would find a way. Now you look at Phoenix and they're really in a tough position because you don't know about Chris Paul. Chances are he's not going to be available for game three. So Monty Williams is going to have to come up with something unique. And I think you're right. They have to figure out a way to get Jokic away from the basket, make him defend a little bit, try to – so maybe it impacts him a little bit on on the offensive end. Hey, Frank, to go a little bit further on that point, if Chris Paul is out for a game or two or longer, uh, I'm going to steal, Jonesy, I'm going to steal your line. I mean, hey, we, we think alike so often anyway, so it's it's almost like your words become mine anyway. We were talking a couple of days ago. One of the points that Jonesy made, and I kind of concur, Frank, I don't know if you would as well, Kevin Durant, as great as he is and still is, has kind of looked good, but not necessarily dominant. And it's only a couple games in, but he's been good but not great. If he's playing at that level, and there's no Chris Paul, and they're already down a couple of games in the series, I don't know if Phoenix even has a comeback in them. Uh, I, I think that's fair. Now, a couple years ago, we had the great play. Pardon, Kevin and Harry uh, Irving were out with injury. And eventually the Nets just decided, we're going to give the ball to Kevin Durant, let him bring it up, and let him either pull up for three or initiate the offense or come off screens. Maybe you'll see a little bit of that if uh, Chris Paul isn't available and they'll let Durant become even more of a playmaker. I think the big issue with Kevin Durant, so this year, you know, the Brooklyn Nets went 18-2 and two over a 20-game stretch. It was the best 20-game stretch in the history of the franchise. Obviously, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving had a lot to do with that. But then Kevin Durant got hurt in a game in Miami when Jimmy Butler rolled into his knee. He never played another game for the Brooklyn Nets. He ended up getting traded while he was injured. So he shows up in Phoenix. He's not ready to play yet. Finally plays. They don't uh, lose a game with him. But then he had that, uh, you know, his ankle gave way when he went up uh, in warm-up. Everyone talked about him slipping. If you really look at the replay of that, and I give my uh, co-host, Brian Scalabrini, a lot of credit. He talked about his, basically his muscle muscles didn't initiate, they didn't activate. So that's a scary situation for him. He's had a lot of leg injuries. And you just wonder when you suffer a knee injury, then an ankle injury, how much is he able to work on his own? during that time that he was away, and you wonder if that is starting to impact him right now. Maybe it's going to start to catch up to him. That's my only issue with Kevin Durant. I got to see all of his games when he was in Brooklyn. The guy is an incredible player, does everything right, but he can't stay healthy. And at some point, you know, that that catches up to you, and it could be catching up to him and the Phoenix Suns right now. 
All right, Frankie, let's talk about stay in the West and talk about catching up. Uh, we talked to Sean Powell a little while ago about because he's covering the Warriors Lakers series. Um, can Anthony Davis maintain that level of play? Like we saw him, he was terrific in game one, albeit the second half, he showed a little bit of fatigue. He was great in the first half, looked like he was a little bit tired in the second half. This series is going every other day. Is he going to be able to maintain that? Because when he does, he's great. But, you know, staying on the floor and, and staying healthy, as, as you know, one of my guys joked with me, he said, I love AD, I'm a Laker fan, but that dude's hurt more than Tony Braxton. Now, I had to, I had to like, calm him down on that one. But... That's, a great, that's a great line. <laughs> yeah. But, Frankie, if he stays healthy, the, the Lakers are suddenly a force to be reckoned with. That's the big question, isn't it? I think, I think you're right. And when you talk about him staying healthy, he then becomes their best player. And if LeBron yes. James is going to be your second best player, you're, you, that's saying something. Now, you, you mentioned it with the uh, you know, playing every other day. That's also going to be an issue here for LeBron. That's why I thought the Lakers caught a huge break when the Warriors lost game six. Because both those teams played last Friday. Game one would have been Sunday. So the Lakers at least got a few days off. But Davis is a problem right now for the Golden State Warriors. I mean, his size, you know, is an issue. And if you go back to after Steph tied the game up, I think it was 112 all. He then um, he then drove into the basket, drove to the basket. Anthony Davis blocked it. Next possession, it was a good contest by Davis when Jordan Poole misses a shot. Then their next possession was the Jordan Poole long three-pointer that he missed. So Davis w- was dominant in that series. The size is always going to be a problem now for the Golden State Warriors. Golden State better knock down some shots. I just wonder if, you know, if, if LeBron could give them two classic LeBron games, then the Warriors could be in really big trouble in this series. Speaking with Frank Isola, let, let me let me stay in that series, and, and Jonesy referenced it a little bit earlier, Frank, but uh, you know, to go back to that, to that game one, and you just referenced the score at 115 all, just a couple of moments later uh, with the Lakers leading that Jordan Poole shot, like, uh, I don't know, Frank. To me, it's a classic case of a guy, know your role. Like, there's two better guys on the floor, two better shooters on the floor that should be taking that shot. I know Steph gave it up to him. Maybe he thought he'd be getting it back. But what did you make of that shot and just Poole's selection and decision-making at that juncture of the game? I think uh, I think he was 6 for 10 on threes up to that point. He had made his last three-pointer, which made it a three-point game before Steph hit the game-tying three. I'll only say this in Jordan Poole's defense, and I thought he was horrific in game six against Sacramento. I could not believe how bad he was, how uh, poor some of the shots were in that game. I think in that moment, because he had just missed uh, in the lane, I thought the idea was I would extend the game at that point. There's still plenty of time left to attack the basket, try to make it a one-point game. Lakers will probably call timeout. Then you're playing the foul game. I would have put all the pressure back on the Lakers. I didn't love the shot, but I think the fact that, you know, he had made six three-pointers already in that game. They were doing everything they could to get the ball out of Steph's hand. I think it comes down to, was that the shot that the Warriors wanted or was that the shot that the Lakers wanted? I definitely think the Lakers would rather have the ball not in Steph Curry's hands. If you notice, Steve Kerr isn't going to publicly kill Jordan Poole. Draymond on his podcast, you know, defended the shot. I think 
based on that game, it wasn't the worst shot. If he had taken that in game six, when all he was doing was taking bad shots, I think it would have been a little different story. I, t- I agree, Frank. I, I really agree. And, and, and again, all of us cut from an old school cloth. I, 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 I don't like to go for the three unless I absolutely have to. And then you run something that has multiple options, like extend that game. You know, you're, you just had a big run and the Lakers had, you know, a couple of buckets. Okay, fine. But to me, I'm with you. Extend the game. And I, I got to tell you, um, as much as people were killing the Lakers early in the year, um, you know, uh, Darvin Ham has done a pretty good job. Mind you, it, it's, it's easy when you have LeBron and Anthony Davis. But, um, you know, I look at him and Joe Mazzulla as young coaches, first-time coaches going up against championship coaches in both their series. Um, you know, what are you looking at there, Frank, in terms of the coaching matchups? Because coaches can, they, they can't necessarily win you games, but they can, their game plans can lose it for you if you're not careful. I, I got to give Darvin Ham a lot of credit. You know, the sky was falling for the Lakers earlier this season. The awful start that they got off to, you know, of course, all the criticism is coming down. Uh, Russell Westbrook, should they bring him off the bench? He shouldn't start. They got to trade him. And Darvin Ham, you know, just had a singular focus, just to try to get his team prepared every game and be ready to play and not panic too much. And now you look at him, you know, his, his demeanor and his attitude, I think, really helped the Lakers. And what was, you know, a trying period for them. And give the front office credit for the trades that they made because all those trades have worked out for them. I don't think – it's amazing. You coach the Lakers and they're in the second round. They've won a game. I don't feel like he gets enough credit just for the way that he's handled the whole season. And then as far as Joe Mazzulla is concerned, I mean, he's in a no-win situation. He has to at least get to the finals or everyone's going to kill him saying, oh, why did we hire this guy? He took over a ready-made team that made it to the finals last year. So he, out of every coach – has the most pressure on him because it feels like the least he can do is get to an NBA Finals. And even then, that might not be good for enough people. So, and I think you, you know, up in Boston, they were really going after Joe Mazzulla after game one. But come on, man. The, the players, you know, hate him, missed some big shots. Brogdon had one of the worst turnovers you're ever going to see. I mean, those are experienced players not making shots and committing bad turnovers. I'm not putting that on the coach. And maybe, Frank, to that point, this is a way for me to, to segue or transition over to the Knicks and to the Heat. As you talk about the Celtics, uh, we were asking Gary Washburn about this earlier in the show. If you're Boston, if you're Philly right now, are you not just thinking that your path to the finals is, it's not a guaranteed lock, but it's certainly a heck of a lot easier without Giannis and the Bucks in there? Or, Frank, do you see the Knicks or the Heat, whoever gets through, being able to actually give a run to Philly or Boston? You know, the other night when I watched Boston lose to Philadelphia, because I, you know, I had been at the Philly Nets games, and I wasn't that impressed with Harden, and he had the great game. But I do like a lot of uh, the players on Philadelphia. But watching Boston lose, who I think they have the most talent out of all the teams, even before the playoffs began, and then watching the Warriors lose to the Lakers, I'm thinking, man, it's it feels more wide open than ever before. I even think that the Knicks, if if things were to break right, they can get to the NBA Finals. And that's how wide open it feels for me now. But to your point, you know, if you're the Boston Celtics, last year they had a tough seven-game series against Milwaukee. They had to go on the road 
and win that game six. That's when Tatum had that unbelievable game just to save their season. So, again, that kind of factors into the whole thing with Joe Missoula. If you don't, you know, you don't have to play Milwaukee and you can get to an NBA Finals, anything less than that would be a failure. I still think the best team is Boston, even though I know they've had some issues. They had, you know, the game five loss to Atlanta at home. They had the game one loss uh, to uh, Philadelphia. Do you realize they're seven and eight in their last 15 home playoff games? So they have not been, they've, they've actually struggled at home in their last 15 home playoff games. But I still think that's the team to beat. Um, Frank, I, for me, I, I like the, the big boys, you can't count them out. Like you said, I, I think Darvin Ham deserves a lot more credit. Um, uh, you know, Golden State's always dangerous. I, I think that could be kind of a legacy series because if one of those teams ends up winning a, a championship, the Lakers or, or Golden State, that gives either LeBron or Steph five. Same number as Kobe, yep. more than Shaq. Uh, one behind Michael, and they both have uh, mileage left on the tires. So, um, But look, let's get to one series, Frank, that I know you and I and, and Eric, we love to watch these things back in the 80s. Very different. But this New York-Miami series, how does Miami keep doing it with their uh, undrafted, uh, you know, minimal end-of-the-bench roster kind of guys when they paid all the money to the big boys and you got to go through the bargain bin to – to find these other guys and they keep they keep showing up they keep winning games in kind of setting that pat riley mold in a new era they just keep grinding away frank yeah and i think you know you hear the people around the nba say it all the time the miami heat are not for everybody and there's a certain kind of player that's always going to work there and i think you know the perfect example is Udonis Haslam, who's been there forever. I think he's only played 65 games the last uh, seven seasons. This is obviously his last year. But he is, you know, the definition of what they love to call heat culture. They find guys that are hard playing, that are coachable. Now they find a lot of guys that can knock down threes. And that's why against the Knicks the other night, I know the Knicks were getting criticized a lot for the, you know, the fact that it was a nip and tuck game, basically a Miami team without Tyler Hero and without Jimmy Butler. But I think it's, just says a lot about Eric Spolster and the Miami Heat. It's just the type of organization that they have. Let's remember, a couple of years ago, you know, more than a couple of years ago, they were in the NBA Finals. Last, then they got swept. Then they were in the Conference Finals last year. Well, you know, one Jimmy Butler shot away from beating Boston, and now you know they're three wins away from getting back to the Eastern Conference Finals after basically being the seventh seed. I don't want to hear about how they're the eighth seed. Give me a break with that. They were the seventh seed you know, for most of the year. And they, they just, you know, know how to get it done at this time of year. Frank, we appreciate the time as always, man. Thanks for joining us and uh, safe travels. We'll talk again soon. Gentlemen, I'll see you. Take care. Always great chatting with Frank Isola from, well, the, the Yes Network, ESPN, and, of course, from SiriusXM Satellite Radio, NBA Radio. Frank Isola, always love chatting with Frankie. We're going to step aside for a quick little pause. Gives me a chance to remind you to subscribe to Smith & Jones. Download Smith & Jones, then subscribe, rate, review, share, all that good stuff. Back with more in a moment. Welcome back to Smith & Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. Download, subscribe, rate, and review Smith & Jones. Fresh content every Thursday with the full pod but we're also doing these sort of express, uh, express editions, these mini versions on Monday or Tuesday as well. So keep it locked on your feed and make sure you're always finding the latest edition of Smith 
and Jones. We continue on with this episode. We already heard from Gary Washburn and Frank Isola. Let's bring into the conversation from NBA.com, NBA TV, and, of course, NBA Radio as well, Brian Geltziler. Brian, great to have you. And, um, uh, boy, the, the NBA playoffs, one of my, my buddies, uh, Eric, and I, he's the, uh, he's the stats guy, the third man in the booth for, for the Blue Jays, Scott Carson. And he hit me on Twitter saying, I love the NBA playoffs. And, and there's nothing like grown men playing for a ring. I mean, all the money's already been paid out over the regular season. This is, this is bonus time and pride time. And um, the playoffs have been great so far. G- give me a series that's really got your interest, Brian. Like this one is one I'm watching or, or the top two that I'm watching more than the others right now. Um, well, so there's two of them, um, and this is going to be a little bit cliched, one of them, which is obviously has to be the Lakers and the Warriors, um, just because the Lakers are so fascinating to me. When do we ever see a team that essentially takes over 50% of their rotation and completely and entirely swaps it out at the trade deadline with only one-third of the season remaining and then finds a way – to crawl their way into the playoffs through a play-in win, wins a series against the two-seed, and is now sitting here, takes game one against the defending champions, and looks every bit like a team that can come out of the conference. It's incredibly fascinating to me. And it's very easy to write it off to saying, hey, Anthony Davis is playing defense at a level that he never has before. Or they have LeBron James on their team. Well, this is 38-year-old LeBron James that can't give you everything he has on a night-in-night-out basis because he's 30. Eight years old. So there's so many other little things working for them. And I think for all that we talk about with good coaching jobs and bad coaching jobs, the one guy that I think has fallen under the radar with all we talk about the Lakers with the job he's done is Darvin Ham. Darvin Ham's yeah. done a tremendous job with this team getting them to guard and basing a defense around Davis and picking his spots on with, you know, what night to finish with Russell and what night to finish with Schroeder. And maybe tonight's a Beasley night and maybe tonight is a, a Hachimura night. He's just picking his spots night in and night out. And he's really making a lot more right calls than wrong calls. So I look at that series and I see a team like the Warriors who has almost the exact opposite with their bench. Steve Curry. And night in and night out has no clue what to do. He's got this huge Jordan Poole problem who, I mean, I, I don't know how you can close games with him on the court. Like, I don't blame the game one bad shot on Jordan Poole. I blame it on Steve Kerr because if you're going to have Jordan Poole on the court, expect that shot. It's like the guy that buys a golf course, uh, buys a house next to a golf course, and then cries foul, and golf balls start flying through his window. Jordan Poole is going to take these shots. You have him on the floor, and this is what happens. So you look at that, and then you realize that all of any mistakes that Kerr makes, wrong buttons he presses, can just be erased by a great Curry game. So, like, there's so many different permutations here from X's and O's to coaching to rotation management to all-time greats. Like, it, there's just so many great layers of basketball to watch in this series. So that one's got my attention. And listen, I think Boston-Philly is a thrilling chess match. 
I think Boston is the better basketball team. But I'm going to say something about Doc Rivers that we haven't heard a lot in recent years. He is the superior coach in this playoff series, and it's not even close. And Doc winning that chess match could very well be a great equalizer that could put the Sixers over the hump in this series. I am not scared off by last night's margin of victory. Boston was due that. It was kind of an outlier the way they threw threes in and Tatum didn't do much. So those two series really are the ones that have me gripped the most. Okay, so Brian, let me work in, in, in reverse order, go back to where you started then with the Lakers. And and you bring up Darvin Ham, and rightfully so, 100%, but Rob Palenka, for the job he did as well in restructuring and redoing that roster midstream, it's one thing to do it in an off season. it's another thing to do it midway through the year and then have the right pieces fit. And he was a guy that was getting ripped last year, beginning of this year, and rightfully so for the way that he had built that team and was it the right mix around LeBron, et cetera. Suddenly now he looks like an absolute genius because it wasn't just like one or two guys hit. Every single one of the moves that he made has proven to be an absolute winner for the production, the chemistry, and, and, and right on down the list. It's been a home run across the board. Eric, I have to be fair. Everything you said is absolutely correct. Every button Palinka pressed the trade deadline has worked. The one reason I don't go over the top with praise for him, and this is a joke that I like to make, one of the people you can credit the most with this Lakers great late season run and then you know coming into this new group that they have is Brooklyn Nets owner Joseph Tsai. Because if Joseph Tsai is willing to trade Kyrie Irving to the Lakers, this may not be your Lakers team, okay? He yeah. wouldn't do it and force Palinka in another direction. So, yes, I have to give Palinka credit. The deals were great. He somehow still held on to a first-round pick in doing all of this and putting this team on the map as, let's face it, a legit title contender. And all the moves have worked. I have to give him credit. You're absolutely right. But we do need to be conscious of the fact that his first choice was to bring Kyrie Irving into that organization. And if we're being frank, we kind of see how all of that worked out with the Dallas Mavericks, and it wasn't really that good. Now, listen, Kyrie back with LeBron, with the Lakers, we could certainly have a different result there as well. Okay, well, hold on, Jonesy. Let me, let me jump in real quick then. Is he going to be able to stay out of his own way then in the offseason and not bring Kyrie Irving in this summer? Right. right. I don't know. I don't know. That's a great question. I don't know. I wish I had the answer to that question because the truth of the matter is I think it's going to come down to this. Who would LeBron rather play with, Kyrie Irving or D'Angelo Russell? And I think the deeper they get in the playoffs with Russell having a meaningful role, and he has had a meaningful role. I'm not a fan of the player, but I have to be fair. He's had a very meaningful role. The, the more that we see regarding how well Russell plays, the less of a chance I think we have of Irving ending up there. And one thing I will say about Irving, guys, and I said this at the time and I will hold to it now, the best financial offer he was going to get to, for this next contract was the one that he was so insulted by by Brooklyn that forced him essentially into the trade demand. He will not see a better financial offer than that when the Nets made him. Uh, Eric, you, you, we think alike because I was saying there could be another chance to get uh, Kyrie to L.A. this, this offseason. Um, you know, Geltz, we know that sometimes the action in the offseason is more compelling than the stuff on the, game, uh, on the court because during the season and the playoffs, it's all on the court. We don't have off court, much off-court drama, but the offseason is terrific. And, and you know, you, you, I'm, I'm going to hit on something that you uh, talked about earlier with Doc Rivers uh, you know, 
out coaching in a sense Joe Missoula. I look at um, the Phoenix uh, Denver series. You have two quality coaches there. Has Mike Malone uh, moved his chess pieces better than than Monty Williams? Considering that, you know, Eric and I were in a we were on a chat when we talked about this. Both of us watching the game from our respective living rooms. Kevin Durant, for a guy who's a great player, he was he was kind of average in game two, and he looked like he was deferring at times to me, Geltz. So, all right, so there's two parts to that, Jonesy, right? The first part is, listen, I had Michael Malone third for, for my coach of the year votes, only behind Mike Brown and Tom Thibodeau. I think he did that good a job this year. Hmm. I think Michael Malone has more pieces to go to than Monty does right now. So I don't even know that it's a fair type of comparison when you look at pressing rotational buttons. I mean, listen, Malone, if you want to count Christian Braun, I guess you can, but that brings him to eight. He played seven, and one of them is Jeff Green, who's like 52 years old. You know what I mean? Like, so what Malone does with less is incredible. This is all new for Monty, and I got to cut Monty a little bit of a break. And the other thing with Durant, and you make a very good point. Listen, Phoenix has a problem in this series. Phoenix has got a problem in these playoffs, and it's something that's got to be solved. They don't make enough three-point shots. And their answer at times is to not take a lot of three-point shots. And for the most part, I, I, I think that's what you have to do when you can't make them. But you get against the best teams and teams that can shoot threes, and it does put you at a disadvantage. But the other point I want to make about Durant, and I've heard Bill Simmons say this on his Ringer podcast multiple times, and I think he's spot on about it. There's still a new guy vibe with Durant and the Suns. He just hasn't been there that long. And I think when you come in as a player, even of his caliber and his stature, it takes time to take ownership of a team. You, you, and that has to be organic. If you come in as the new guy and decide you're immediately taken over, you get a lot of raised eyebrows around a locker room that's had some things go well over the course of the last couple of years. So I think Durant's trying to do that the right way. The playoffs are not the right time to be doing that. Um, you combine that with the fact that I don't think Chris Paul is coming back in this series, and that's just one less rotation piece that they need, and one of their better defensive players, even at his age. You know, keep one thing in mind about the Durant trade. You removed their defensive ace in Mikhail Bridges. That was their most important defensive player, bar none. And you're asking now Durant and Paul to mix and match in that role. And Durant's a really good defensive player, but it takes away something from the offensive end when he's got to give that much energy on defense at 34 years old. And, and I think that, that has hurt this team a little bit because he hasn't given that energy on defense. It's been more offense. They're disconnected defensively. I just think Monty's got a huge job in pulling this group together. And I look at the whole operation from Matt Ishbia right down to James Jones, down to Monty Williams. They need an offseason to build the right pieces around Durant and Booker. They need a training camp to pull those pieces together and get things systemically where they need to be. I just think Phoenix being a true title contender this year is definitely kind of putting the cart before the horse a little bit. Brian, what you were just talking about uh, with Durant and maybe not quite totally fitting in yet and having that that, that flow and that vibe, could he fast-track that? and kind of have that baptism by fire going into the rest of the series if he's maybe the one running the point and, and, and kind of dictating and, and orchestrating the offense with Chris Paul sideline. 
I think it's a great idea. And, I, and, and will it work? I have no idea if it will work, but it's absolutely worth a shot. Because you do, gotta do, you do have to do a little bit of trial by fire here. It, the situation changes on multiple levels without Chris Paul. Just because he was a glue guy there that they needed that attached Durant and Booker to everybody else. Now they have to kind of do that on their own. Listen, Devin Booker is an excellent player. I'm not criticizing him in any way. But in some ways, the way he plays offense kind of has him exist on an island of his own. He's a really good isolation player. He's really good at getting his shots in mid-range. By the same token, he's also a guy that is not necessarily going to be this wonderful facilitator or wonderful passer. Kevin Durant can be that, and we've seen him be that. The question is, do they have enough guys around him that can knock down shots? The other guy that you look at and you're wondering how he's struggling to fit in on both ends of the floor now is DeAndre Ayton. I almost feel yes. like DeAndre Ayton is, is it's a tough spot for him. He, he needs more usage to be effective than he's ever going to get with this team. And I'm curious to see how the Suns approach that in the offseason because he does have value out there. He's a really, really talented guy. He's really well-liked around the league. I mean, he's, he's, got, he's developed a reputation because of the problems in his relationship with Monty Williams. The reality is he's an affable guy. He's, he's just a fun guy to be around. Teammates love him. And he's a really talented kid. He really is. It's just, again, he, needs, he, he would be better and more effective if he's more of a centerpiece than he is with this group. So there's just a lot of unanswered questions for where they are and what they have right now, and they're questions that you just can't answer smack in the middle of a series. Listen, they're going to have to beat a really good Denver team, four out of five. Denver was the second-best home team in the NBA. They were the best team most of the season until they had like a, the last couple weeks of the season. They collapsed a little bit. For Phoenix to have to go in there and get one and hold serve at home is a very, very big ask for a team that's, rel- that's pr- pretty new together, that is just a new group here. Gels, if I'm a Knicks fan, should I be concerned that it's 1-1? Jimmy Butler's only played in one game. Uh, Mind you, Julius Randle's only played in one game. But it could very easily be 2-0 going back to Miami. And if Jimmy's healthy, should I be worried as a Knicks fan? Yes, very. Very. I don't like what I've seen out of two games from them. And, and listen, some of it's going to be Jimmy. You know what Jimmy's going to be able to do, Jonesy. He, this is who he is. He carries the load at this time of year. He's going to be a problem. The problem I've seen for the Knicks is how badly they've struggled against the Lowry-Vincent backcourt together, which was not a look that Spo uses a lot in the regular season. The lineup that beat the Knicks late in game one, which was Lowry, Vincent, Caleb Martin, Jimmy, and Bam out of Bayou, they played nine minutes together in that game. They had played a total of seven minutes together for, during the season. And that Lowry-Vincent backcourt really gave them trouble. And the thing that worries me about the Knicks is it gave them trouble in game two without Butler on the floor. I mean, if he had to blitz Lowry out high, one of the reasons that when I say he, I mean Tom Thibodeau, one of the reasons Tom didn't have R.J. Barrett closing the game was because of all the off-ball scrambling, and Grimes is just better at it off the ball than R.J. Barrett is, and that's what Tom had to prioritize. You combine that with the fact that the Heat have kind of made the Knicks for saying, hey, you know what, 
outside of Brunson, we're letting everybody else shoot threes. And we're going to, we know that Randall will hurt us more in the paint. We know that Barrett will hurt us more in the paint. We know that quickly will hurt us more in the paint. Have fun from three boys. And that has not worked out well for the next year in this series. And they're going to see a lot more of that. And the other thing is this, and, and I want to make this point because I think it's important in putting the proper context on the Knicks here. The average age of their nine-man rotation is 24.7 years old. They're a really, really young basketball team. Emmanuel quickly is having a horrible playoff right now. He's a young player with a great future ahead of him that's kind of thrown in here trial by fire. He's the number one reason they are, they are struggling with this Larry Vincent lineup because Tom's being forced to, to blitz them high, whoever has the ball between Larry and Vincent, instead of being able to stay at home man up because quickly can't handle himself, and he's got to go to two wings with Hart and Grimes, and that's been a little bit of a tough matchup with Larry and Vincent here, especially with Jimmy on the floor. So the Knicks here, this is a tough series for them. Miami's not your typical eight seed. I like the Knicks in seven at the beginning of the series. It's the one series where I've shifted what I've thought and through two games. I think the Knicks are in a little bit of trouble here, Jonesy. Hey, Brian, mm. last one for you here. Win or lose, are the Knicks back? Yes, 100%, Eric. The Knicks are back. I was in the garden a week ago Friday night. The joint was jumping. It's as electric as it was in the 90s. The fans are engaged. They've been waiting on a team like this. Did you see Celebrity Row the other night? Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, yeah. It was from Chris Rock to Dave Chappelle to Jessica Alba, and then you got Aaron Rodgers and, and, and Sauce Gardner sitting there. I mean, you had everybody. The, the place has become the place to be, and that's with McEnroe and Spike Lee. It's the Knicks are back in a meaningful, huge way, and then you look at where they are, that young age of their core, all of these player assets and all of these draft picks the first star that comes available that they decide they want, they're going to be able to go get. So, And with where you are this year and what you've done, they are truly that one extra player away with the thought that if, we, if we're able to keep Brunson, keep Randall, keep Barrett, and keep Robinson, everybody else's fair game to go out in a trade to add that fifth guy, the Knicks are back. And the Knicks are going to be back, and they are going to be a perennial contender here with the next right move for the next five to seven years to be able to come out of the East every single year. Mm. Wow. All right, Brian, we appreciate the time as always, man. My pleasure, gentlemen. It always is. Please reach out again. Love being on with you guys. That was Brian Geltzeiler from NBA.com, NBA Radio, and NBA TV. Always love chatting with him. And, of course, earlier in the show, great conversations with Gary Washburn from the Boston Globe and Frank Isola from SiriusXM NBA Radio as well. Folks, one last time, subscribe to Smith & Jones. Rate, review, share it, and make sure you keep it tuned in and locked in on your podcast feed on Thursdays but also early in the week as we will be providing multiple editions, multiple shows throughout the NBA postseason and then into the draft and the early stages of free agency as well. Thanks for tuning in to Smith & Jones on Sportsnet 590, The Fan.